0: And good evening and welcome to the show. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yon The Bud here on 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate that you have other choices and we're glad that you chose us. Lots to do tonight. So much going on. Uh, Hope you're going to keep up. We've got a couple hours of uh, stuff that we're going to share over here with you all related to mental health and addiction and kind of just getting on the other side of, you know, each and every day to make it a little easier, a little better. And that's what this show is about. It's about helping each other kind of a community thing where we help one another and we share ideas and thoughts and stories uh, that might be impactful. Some of them may make you smile, some may make you cry, but hopefully they make you think just a little bit about how your day could be a little better and how you might make someone else's day a little bit better. Uh, experts in mental health are understanding now that we've made a mess. We've left uh, things behind in terms of uh, our mental health care system and our health care system through this pandemic. And we've left a lot of people uh, in a bad way. Kids, families, parents, um, just people trying to survive, getting through the other side of what a day might look like now that you're almost in a post-pandemic situation. So the pandemic caused universal harm to everyone's mental health. And for people that were most vulnerable, it was most uh, most obvious. You could see that they, the most depressed, the most marginalized people seemed to be um, even in worse shape. And according to the experts that deal with the culture, uh, director of culture psychiatry uh, at the University of California, Dr. Davis, uh, they're talking about urgent wake-up call for providers, community stakeholders, and politicians, prompting them to reimagine mental health care and delivery, and looking at how they can improve equity. So this article is kind of about, you know, it's titled, the the article that we're talking about is titled, Mental Health Care Should Be Available for All not a luxury and and by the way I, I totally agree I think that uh, you, you know I, I do run facilities that are um, that are private pay but I w- we also do a lot of work in the field trying to help people that uh, can't afford that kind of service so there's all kinds of virtual care facilities now and online um, access that you you know you, you didn't have before the pandemic or at least not to the same extent but the obvious situation the solution they say in the U- in the US and obviously seems would apply for canada is to st- establish some form of universal mental health care system that's available to everybody and the reason i say that is because if you live in certain parts of ontario you're not going to get the same level of health care opportunity in terms of getting to see a, a mental health practitioner therapist social worker you know, drug addiction specialist somebody that's you know in that in that field the, the chances of getting them uh getting an appointment are, are get slimmer for some reason, the further you move uh, from the epicenter of Ontario, for example, or Canada for that matter, and you move it out forward. So, you know, the closer you get to communities that are already marginalized, what we're seeing are um, horrible, horrible impacts of mental health and substance abuse, um, and no one around to really help. So the question is, where's all the money that the government pledged to help with all this stuff, You know, they pledged, from what I understand, 350 million or something recently, um, Ontario government did, and I'm trying to see where that's going. But that's not what this article is about. The article is about how people are going to get health care and, and, and mental health care in particular if they're already in a situation that's underserviced and they have you know limited, if any, access. And we're seeing it in certain um, communities of neighborhoods within the city that may not have the same economic level as others in the city. So, for example, it seemed that you could get a um, you could get a, a vaccination sooner if you were living, let's say, you know, closer to the center of town in quote unquote nicer neighborhoods unquote. I don't know what that means, but <clears throat> versus, let's say, living in a in a community housing project where you know you may not have access at the same time. So that that in the mental health world means that there's a whole lot of people that need help. There's a whole lot of kids. That are feeling depressed and anxious and suicidal. And by the way, it's not a privileged thing, right? So the kids that are coming from quote unquote privileged communities are suffering at a in a different way, as same as the kids that come from less privileged communities. But they're they're suffering the same. They're suffering, you know, essentially in the same sorts of ways, right? So anxiety is anxiety, whether you're a rich kid or a kid that comes from a family that's struggling. Depression, the same, you know, low self-esteem, the same. And often I find that kids come from more versus kids that come from less in terms of monetary stuff are less resilient than those that come from communities that we work with that, you know, don't have the same levels of income or two parents working and, and so on and so forth. But what we're talking about here is that it's not just about money. It's about the whole stigma of trying to get help, you know, in certain communities it's, it's, you know, talking about your mental health may not be as cool or as uh, understandable for uh, your friends as it might be for others, right? So there's a whole stigma around it. And what we need to do is we really need to focus on improving access, improving the ability for people that need the help to get the help and to get more involved in the community healing aspects, right? Because we're dealing with people who are going to be not well for a long time and it's gonna be a drain on our system, it's gonna be drain, a drain on our healthcare system and our uh, financial resources and so on. We need equitable mental health care now. It needs to be across all, all uh, facets of life. Certainly uh, we have to deal with the racism and uh, the inequities from different communities and so on, but essentially by not providing some, you know, ubiquitous amount of care. In other words, everyone gets the same regardless of what you come from, we're going to see a huge problem here a huge problem that we're not going to be able to handle and one that's going to cost us a fortune in real dollars and most importantly in loss of life so that's what i want you to think about i want you to think about what we can do you know with within our own communities to make sure that those that are let that are more vulnerable and have a little less get what they need and are able to sleep at night knowing that their kids and that themselves are able to deal with the things that keep them up and make them uncomfortable in their own skin and that's just quality of a function of good quality um, ability for someone to listen right It's all about listening. you know talk talk therapy is where it's all at. Mindfulness is helpful, cognitive behavioral therapy, but just listening, having someone to listen that makes all the difference in the world. Anyway, when we come back we have a whole bunch more stuff to do. I want you to continue on this road to recovery with me. This is Yona Bud 640, Toronto. Okay, welcome back. you are on the road to recovery here with Yona Bud. that's me. And uh, you're on 640 Toronto. Thanks for joining us. We're doing a lot of stuff. Hope you're keeping up. Uh, Shared a lot of information about a lot of cool stuff and stuff that maybe not so cool stuff we have to pay attention to just to do a better job of taking care of each other. You know, that includes, by the way, our friends and colleagues and loved ones that are behind bars. So you're listening to a man who's not only a a therapist and, you know, I work on, on radio and so on. I I, I run facilities and treatment facilities, but I spent 10 years as a chaplain in an Ontario uh, facility, the Ontario Correctional Institute as a volunteer and um, learned a lot about the world of incarcerated individuals. When I was a kid and not acting very well, I had more than my share of time. uh, Fortunately, just in local facilities, but not for very long overnight at most. Um, But the decade that I spent in, the facilities helping others I learned a lot of things about a lot of things and one of the things I learned about is if you go to federal prison you can get some of the best drugs in the world they're a fortune they cost you more than you can imagine for example a joint might cost you 25 or 30 dollars whereas in Toronto maybe it would be on the street ten dollars right so two or three times the cost Um, and then we don't even want to get into how it gets into the institution that's a whole different discussion but there are drugs coming into the system that are the same as the drugs that are out there. So if you have a batch of, let's say, cocaine, a popular drug in jail, if you have a batch of cocaine coming in, for example, the chances of that cocaine being tainted like the ones on the street, like the, the coke on the street, is identical, if not more so. Because when you're dealing to people in prison, you're not so much worried about losing your clientele. They don't have a lot of choices, right? The choices are very limited and few and far between. But prison guards at Drumheller uh, were initially opposed to the overdose prevention site. Um, and the Prairie's regional, regional president of the Union of Canadian Correctional Officers said, the program is now viewed as absolute positive and members are pushing for it to replace prison needle exchange programs or PNEPs. So there used to be a, a needle exchange program versus uh, safe access, safe injection sites and so on um and we have a guest with us this evening her name is dr lynn leonard and she's with the university of ottawa dr leonard thank you for joining us this evening um i may call you lynn as you know i told you that's my mom's name um so i may once in a while do that just out of affection uh but dr yeah. leonard you know we're on the same page here we're, we're dealing with i think maybe more of an issue with toxicity in jail perhaps than on the street would you not say
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me and for your interest in this uh, topic. And your point is very well made that the increasingly toxic drug supply, um, as you say, in the community um, certainly needs attention, both within the community and within uh, our correctional service facilities.
0: Right. And what's your role in, in this as we're as we understand it.
1: So I was contracted by... To do, a, to do a, a research project, right? right. To um, evaluate um, both the prison-based needle exchange program and the overdose prevention service at Drumheller. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't contracted to compare them, but rather to conduct mm-hmm. an interview to look at the feasibility uh, from the perspectives of correctional officers and other staff and acceptability among uh, inmates. So oh. your,
0: your, your credentials, just to jump on that for a second, um, obviously you have a PhD in what?
1: In epidemiology and biostatistics and okay. social policy and social work. Wow. It was a combined degree from
0: McGill. Wow, smart lady. So how is that now, now that all the stuff that you're researching and you're finding um, is it pointing to, to like, so let me go backwards. Are, mm-hmm. we, are we seeing overdose issues in prison? And if so, we're not hearing about them, right? Um,
1: that would be a question for correctional services Canada <laughs> to give <laughs> okay. you the data. Okay. Um, but certainly, um, I mean, I'm conducting what are called qualitative interviews. Okay. So I just have some themes that I want to discuss with people, but essentially I'm listening um, and we expand the interview as they bring, as people bring up topics. So certainly the um, topic of overdoses in uh, while people are incarcerated was definitely top of mind for sure. So definitely they are occurring from the inmates' perspectives, and from the perspectives of the correctional officers. I mean, I should say that these are non-fatal overdose events that I was hearing about. But um, my understanding is that Correctional Services Canada are, as we speak, collating data, exactly on your point.
0: Wasn't the the, uh, needle exchange process, wasn't that kind of brought on a while ago, uh, kind of more related to the HIV, spread of HIV and other forms of uh, blood diseases like uh, um, the other forms of diseases that you can get from swapping needles, right? hepatitis and so on. this this has been around before the the tainted drug supply no? oh
1: absolutely um absolutely i mean the the goals of the prison needle exchange program are to reduce the multi-person use or the sharing of non-sterile needles Mm -hmm. and of course their overall number in circulation in in csc institutions but also it had um the other kind of more enhanced objectives perhaps to increase opportunities to provide health teaching, Uh health promotion, engagement in treatment such as opioid agonist treatment. Yep. But you're quite right to reduce the transmission of blood-borne viral infections, including HIV and hepatitis, and to reduce the occurrence of skin infections. related.
0: Oh, never even thought about that.
1: Well, I was shown some uh, jail rigs and also shown the associated uh, infections that arose from that
0: oh my god Um,
1: and clearly that's not good for the person experiencing those injuries that trauma um and it's also a drain on the health services within the institutions so several several interrelated objectives for the prison needle exchange program but you're absolutely right you know in the current context of the really poisoned drug supply which is having a terrible toll on canadians um of all genders ages social locations um these two interventions have become really paramount and really really essential from my point of view
0: what surprised you is anything i I mean you you sound uh, clearly you're very well educated very well respected in your field and you know you've got degrees and stuff that you know collect, collectively make you really smart about a lot of things but what what, sure what no well uh, sounds good anyway right but <laughs> but but what did what what surprised you you obviously have depth and experience what, what did you go into with with this um that you walked away going wow you know i, I had no idea or you know that was you know surprising or you know like what mm-hmm. caused you to go wow if anything
1: I think m- my very first reaction was uh, people's willingness to speak about this with me. It was clearly um, a very important topic, both positive um, both positive and negative perspectives, I heard just just how dominant this was in people's feeling very much a concern about the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C very much concerned about uh the number of non-fatal overdose events and just people were very very keen to hear their voices it was an anonymous interview it was okay. totally confidential I did it in different places and nobody would be um yep. identified yep. um but just the openness with which people spoke about this um, and spoke about the amount of um, drug use that's prevalent
0: within institutions. You also noticed, uh, we only have a little bit of time left here. and yeah. You definitely have to have you back because I love the I love where you're going and where you, where you are learning this stuff is really kind of right up my alley. But the, su- the study showed that 30 inmates used the um the OPS, the, uh, the, the, yes. the, the, the needle exchange program, 798 times between July 2019 and February 2020. Um, is it is the idea of being able to bring this thing forward, is it going to allow the this, this stigma or the risk of being locked down if you're caught as a user? Like what about the protection for those coming forward? We got about a, less than a minute. Um, how do they keep from you know prison uh, repercussions, so to speak?
1: Um, obviously, that was one of um, my concerns in, in speaking with them. I did ask if they had experienced any different behaviour than yep. uh, perhaps other people who were not participating in the programme. Yep. Um, n- no. Um, their colleagues in the, on the range, in the cells, in the houses were pleased that the uh, use was taking place outside of the ranges and outside of the living arrangements. Um, and the most of the staff were very pleased equally that it was taking place out of the ranges, uh, and it's taking place in the health services program. So I can only say that I think um, it's got a lot of potential. Um, nobody told me that they had been ostracized in, in any way, Good. and in fact, perhaps one of my unintended um experiences was hearing how people really enjoyed the waiting time so the idea is you go to the uh, service you have 10 minutes to complete your injection and 20 minutes is for observation and it, it, it crossed my mind that perhaps 20 minutes waiting there um being with a nurse outside the cell door yeah that might put people off in fact it was seen as a really positive experience
0: warm and cozy right
1: And and that it brought the issue of addiction, you know, so much more prominently. People had this protected time with the nurse outside of the um, service, who's sitting there for 20 minutes also, observing them. And they use that time for protected one-on-one time to talk about addiction, to talk about substance use disorder. And just Mm -hmm. even having one based in the institution kind of raised the consciousness, the visibility of substance use disorder.
0: Talking to Dr. Lynn Leonard, she's with the University of Ottawa, studying, uh, su- you know, needle exchanges and safe injection st- facilities in the prisons. One of the one of the heroes that's out there trying to make a difference. We'll have her back again for sure. When we come back, we're going to do a little bit more stuff. We're almost getting to the end of the show, but uh, come on back and join us on the road to recovery. Yona know Bud here, 6:40. Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. You are on the road to recovery. This is Yana Bud here at 640 Toronto in the studio with Heather and Natasha and whoever else might be in there sneaking around and uh, got a lot to do tonight. As you know, Uh, we're talking about stuff that makes a difference, hopefully for uh, the future of others that are dealing with mental health, addiction, crime, you know, the things that make us, you know, toss and turn a little bit at night. This is a situation for sure, which keeps me tossing and turning as a substance abuse therapist and crisis worker. Um, healthcare over handcuffs is the article. BC first to decriminalize simple drug possession. Now, if you've been paying attention to any of the shows along the way here, um, you'll know that we've talked about this uh, quite a lot in terms of the decriminalization of simple supply drugs for the benefit of uh, not you know, putting people who are, um, have addiction disease uh, in the way of the criminal justice system, perhaps, and perhaps direct them more towards help and recovery, but at the same time giving them an opportunity to not kill themselves while going along the way of trying to meet the needs of their compulsion addiction or whatever is driving you through your difficult day. And that's really what it's it. That's really what it's about, right? You really have to understand that, patients that we see that have issues with substance abuse or gambling, texting, sexting, eating, not eating, all that kind of stuff, right? It's it's just about making the pain go away. Someone once said to me, why do people drink so much? And why do people get high? And come on, they, they really need to be using fentanyl. They know it's going to kill them. And I just look at them and I said, you know, if you had a wound on your leg that was so painful, it was throbbing, you would pretty much do anything to make that pain go away. They look at you and they go, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Imagine every day of your life when you wake up, that's what that pain feels like, but inside and not on your feet and your hands, but on the inside and in your guts on everything that makes you who you are. So the federal government announced that starting next year, British Columbia will be the first province in Canada to decriminalize possession of small amounts of illicit drugs, for personal use. We'll get into that in a minute. The decision comes after BC government requested an exemption under the Federal Controlled Drugs uh, uh, Substance Act. We talked about that some time ago as well. Uh, Starting in the 31st of January, 2023, BC adults found to be carrying 2.5 grams of certain drugs, including opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, will not be subject to arrest or charges, and the drugs won't be seized. Instead, police will provide information on available services as requested, uh, support in connecting them with other services, and so on. Decriminalizing the simple possession of drugs is historic, brave, and groundbreaking. It's a first line, first real step in the fight to save lives, and um, the provincial health officer from that area, Bonnie Henry, um, has been a longtime advocate of decriminalization. And she says today's an important day. It's hard to believe that we have actually gotten we've actually gotten here. Um, well, the possession of personal use law was rarely enforced by police. Um, Henry says the exemption is less about legal cons- consequences. reducing stigma. The province had requested a four and a half gram proposal used, or excuse me, requested 4.5 gram personal use exemption from the federal government. And the co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm, her name is Leslie McBain. She's concerned about the cumulative effect of 2.5 grams versus 4.5 grams. And her and I are going to have that discussion right now because she's my guest. Leslie McBain, welcome, and thanks for staying up to play with us tonight.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. So, you know, you and I are going to get into it here because we're kind of on the same side and and we're sort of, yeah, no, we're totally on the same side. I have concerns about you know, I'm an an ex-gangster and ex-gang, you know, like I understand how this can be played out the wrong way too. Uh, And I'm thinking to myself, okay, two and a half grams, you sling that in half grams, you get, you know, $75 a half gram on the corner of the street so you can carry around. So the young slingers, the young guys and gals out there that are slinging dope, uh, for them, uh, this is kind of a, a, a gateway to dealing little bits of drugs, maybe not huge bits of drugs, but little bits of drugs on an ongoing basis. I, I, I assume that the BC folks have kind of looked into that as the possible downside of this thing, because it's probably the only downside, right, is how it's going to be abused. Um, how did that come along in your discussions with anybody? If it did at all, Leslie,
2: it really hasn't come up uh, as as a major issue. Uh, we look at it more that uh, people who are dependent on on drugs, uh, the drugs you listed, especially you know opioids, meth, um, cocaine, and ecstasy, ecstasy, MDMA. Uh, those folks. Uh, for those folks, 2.5 grams is very, very small. Uh, if they are dependent, they may need three times that amount to not go into withdrawal, to keep uh, balanced in the way that they do and are. Um, our concern is to keep people people who use drugs safe. Now, the, the decision about the 2.5 grams came directly from police. And I've been in meetings this morning and I've been in chat with uh, uh, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions federally and provincially. And we know this to be true. So, you know, my question is, who are they trying to protect here with this 2.5 grams? Minister Bennett said, this was a matter of public safety. So I'm really not sure who they're trying to keep safe with 2.5 grams. Anyway, uh, I do believe it should be higher. Uh, to keep Do,
0: people safe. So here's, the, I guess, here's the question. So you mentioned things like MDMA and ecstasy. Are you finding your activities like I, in the practice that I've had for you know well over forty years, I just don't get those kind of patients that are that are that are hooked on MDMA or ecstasy. I got coke, you know, if you're smoking it for sure, snorting it not so much, um, and you know, opioids, you know, and methamphetamine for sure. Uh, but I, I didn't know that certainly not here that i've experienced anyway that there was an issue with the party drug side of this stuff too because if you were allowing someone to carry around two and a half or you know two and a half four and a half grams of of ecstasy to go to a party those are not those are clearly not the same kind of people that we're talking about who who need you know so much of uh so much of an opioid or so much of a uh, of a stimulant on on an ongoing basis to keep from withdrawal Uh, what am i missing here those drugs
2: were the ones that were listed by the federal minister of mental health and addictions. Um, the, the issue here is in, in BC and probably in Ontario and probably across the country is that, um, you know, these drugs are all, uh, potentially tainted with fentanyl. Ah, and so, okay. um, this, okay. this may be the public safety part of it. Yeah, no MDMA and, um, and cocaine, uh, which are the party drugs, um, it's, there is some dependence, but it's not an addiction like Correct. opioids Correct. and meth. Correct. Uh, so yeah, those are, those are not our, uh, and I, when I say our, I mean, our advocates, the advocates who worked on this, uh, for, you know, a couple of years now, right. uh, this, uh, application for, for in the exemption. So yeah, I hear you. Uh, no, most people don't have a problem with those drugs, but at the but same time, yeah, that started, they were yeah,
0: exactly. You don't want a couple of kids, you know, doing something stupid like picking up some Molly on the street and it's tainted with fentanyl and dying at the corner outside the club. I get that. So it, it, the the question then becomes, if you're able to carry two and a half grams or three grams or four grams or five grams, are you suggesting that those same two young boys that we're talking about that are going to go to a party? they're going to have a place to go to buy clean stuff or they don't buy it at all. It's just given to them.
2: Um, no, the only thing we're talking about here with decriminalization
0: is possession. Yeah.
2: Is possession. And, and in terms of young, young kids, you know, this only applies to 18 and over Uh, young kid, younger than that, kids younger than that, who are apprehended and for whatever reason, and found to carry uh, drugs will still be put into the, uh, you know, juvie or the criminal justice system. So, so that's one of our issues is that we need to talk about youth and what happens for them. But uh, yeah, so.
0: yeah, We're going to have to have you come back because we're not going to have enough time to do all the things I want to do, but you definitely have to come back and we could spend a whole evening just talking about what we're going to do with the youth. A quick question though, just on the side, how did you get involved in this?
2: Well, my son, Jordan died of um, a prescription drug overdose in 2014. He oh, was sorry. only 25 years old and I'm he was sorry. my only child. Uh, so that sort of propelled me after I could sort of get out of bed or raise my head again after that yeah, yeah. into uh, advocacy that uh, and our main thrust was to change drug policies to support the lives of people who use drugs. And so that, you know, families like myself and my, my two colleagues didn't have to go through, you know, a lifetime of grief around this. So that's how I got into it. Our, our um, organization started with three of us. We're now about 3,500 across Canada. Oh, wow. With about seventeen or 1,800 of those members in BC.
0: Wow. We're talking about Mums Stop the Harm, a great organization headed by Leslie McMahon and a bunch of uh, her friends, I guess, or colleagues that are alike. Real quick question we got about a minute or so left. Leslie, are we going to win this war?
2: If I didn't think we were going to win this war, I would just give up now Um, i totally have hope i think all the all my colleagues and co-conspirators and advocates um, (laughs) around the land have hope and we we will keep fighting until we win and we will win because it just makes sense
0: so i believe just for what it's worth because we're on the same page and on the same team i think that if police interaction with people that have substance issues isn't a negative situation such that they're going to potentially go to jail. I believe that that would be our first line response. And I believe those coppers are going to make a difference to save lives. What do you think?
2: Yeah. And I do agree with that statement. If And if, well, it's supposed to be in the next six months that the police forces across BC are trained in this new uh, policy. And if they're trained properly and if they behave properly and follow the, follow the guidelines, yes, what you're saying could be true. And I hope, I hope it is.
0: Well, judging by you, by you, who you are and the voice that I hear and the, the actual commitment in your voice that I'm listening to, there's no doubt that you folks are going to keep them in check. And I'm really thankful and really blessed that we have people like you out there and we need more and more folks uh, like you. So uh, come, please come back, join us again. Let's talk some more and um, see if we can continue to try to make some bit, a little bit of a difference. I'd be happy
2: to. Thanks for having
0: me. My pleasure. Leslie McBain, we're talking about uh, um, the criminalization of drugs. And um, she's just one of the soldiers that comes out of some situation where you turn a little darkness into some light, for sure. Um, we'll be back. We've got more stuff to do. Come on back and join us. Road to Recovery, Yonabud, 640. Toronto and welcome back to the show thanks for joining us this evening we're just getting started here so much to do a couple of weeks ago uh, we all heard about uh, Mitch Marner the Toronto Maple Leaf had his car um, carjacked in kind of a violent way um, but it, it's beyond that if you know that's just one story of many 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 if you've been following any of the media uh, we've been reporting a lot about um, uh, carjackings and uh, increased levels of violence in these types of crimes uh, and so on and and you start to drill down through some of these stories and it's you start looking at what's fueling uh, these teenagers because what we're talking about here uh, just in the last few weeks right Toronto's police have arrested like close to 20 young people 10 of them under the age of 15 uh there was a big uh, thing back in Victoria Day weekend a few weeks back where uh uh, you know, a lot of young people were out of control. Arrests were made in connection with uh, two shootings, a stabbing, two robberies at gunpoint, uh, all kinds of incidents of people throwing firecrackers at each other. Like, come on, seriously, who throws firecrackers at each other? Right? You know, like we're talking about fueling um, mob activity using social media like TikTok and Instagram and, and those, Right. And it's young. The kids are getting younger and younger. The perpetrators are getting younger and younger because they're bored. They've got nothing else to do, right? So uh, the gathering came about that last weekend that we're talking about a couple of weekends ago as a result of a TikTok blast that somebody put out that there were a bunch of people who were going to meet and get together. Um, teenage boys, 115, 117 They were charged with a robbery with a firearm. They were just they were disguised with intent, like. This is serious stuff for a 15 and 17 year old kid. You know, the Toronto Police Services they're talking their holdup squad uh, states that in 2021 they responded to 59 carjackings. In 2022, the units responded so far to 60 since January. So all of 2021, 59, and we've surpassed that already since January. Um, roughly a year's worth uh, in roughly five months. According to York Region Police, so it, it's not a far it's not far fetched then to predict that the coming months um, are going to bring additional stuff, more violent crimes, younger people being arrested, and so on. So the question then becomes, what's really going on here? You know, what's what what's at play? What what's going on behind the scenes? So it's a cop out to blame the crime wave involving young in people entirely on on COVID. Like I'm just sick and tired of everybody blaming everything on COVID now because we're getting past that we had a lot of issues before COVID. we're clearly going to have issues after COVID, and um you know there's stuff here that we need to to look at together right these kids they have way too much free time way too much time on their on their on their, on their side to think about doing crazy stuff so the the problem then becomes how do you how do you circumvent this how do you get into the middle of this well let me tell you a story i had a young a young person uh, a patient, a uh, new patient now, come to me and tell me we, we met and uh, virtually, and he was talking to me about being stuck in a mob environment. He, he was invited to a beach party down at, uh, at the beaches area. Uh, it wasn't uh, you know, wasn't organized in terms of any kind of professional organization, just a bunch of kids, drugs, alcohol. He was stuck in the middle of this mob of, he says, close to 800 kids, not young people, call them kids, but young people, and was scared and someone came up to him and just put something in his mouth and before he knew it he was higher than a kite and it turns out that he was given MDMA for the first time didn't didn't enjoy the experience he was stuck in this whole situation uh, ended up calling uh, the, the security people uh, they took him away from the crowd uh, parents were called parents then called me we talked about the whole situation and not a bad kid just with a bunch of rowdy teenagers and he just you know happened to consume something I, I don't know how you stick something in somebody's mouth without their permission but okay right but this whole event was fueled he said he was sitting at home with his friends they were just playing video games at like 9 45 on a on a Saturday night and suddenly somebody sent a message over TikTok big party at the beach and him and about a hundred of his friends and he knew like kidnapped a hundred friends but kids that he knew from his school and from the area uh, met a whole bunch of kids from all over the city down at this event. And somehow he was stuck in the middle of the crowd. He couldn't get in. He couldn't get out. uh, Felt very uncomfortable. So not these events aren't necessarily the greatest thing for everybody that attends them. But the problem that we have is that kids can now summon one another. Listen to what I'm saying. You know, it used to be you have to pick up a phone and call a whole lot of people. Put a party together, or hand out flyers at the schoolyard. You know, it dates back to how far ago it was that I was organizing a party like this, right? And now, you just go to your group of friends, you 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 hit, you know, send to everybody, sort of thing. And the next thing you know, two or three hundred people that you're connected to know know someone who knows someone, are now invited to some kind of event. Here's the next part of the problem. The part, the other part of the problem is when you get a whole bunch of kids together. And they're getting drunk and high, or just just together. Let's say not consuming things they shouldn't. Bad stuff happens. You know the stuff that I did as a kid that I'm not proud of, but was part of my life. You know we did because we were sitting around and really had nothing else going on. So let's do something stupid. So we did stupid things. Now that gathering is not just me and three or four of my buddies at the back of the plaza at Finch and Bathurst. Now it's kids from all over the GTA that can jump on a, on on a bus, on a go train, drive a car, walk, whatever. You're surrounded by people that you don't know. You don't know the bad guys and the good guys. You used to invite people to a party and you knew who was coming because they were on the invitation list, so to speak, you know, yeah. So-and-so was bringing so-and-so as a friend, but for the most part, not a lot of strangers. Rarely did you hear stories of door crashes, I and mean, certainly in my day, right? Now the problem we have is that a whole lot of people are invited to do things. A lot of challenges on these networks, on TikTok and Instagram and such. Challenging what other kids to do other things that aren't good, right? That are causing harm. The whole concept around, uh, around carjackings and, and, and being able to, to keep track of whose car is where. Sending a message from one place to another. Letting somebody know, hey, did you know that Marmer was at at Square One? Uh, he was seen at Square One. Let's go, let's go, you know, grab his ride. I, I don't think it plays out so much like that. I think these kinds of robberies are much more organized. The tools of the trade to do these carjackings are sophisticated. There are certain kinds of electronics, uh, key cutting, fob producing devices. I'm not sure the average 16 or 17 year old kid can, can do this stuff. And I'm not sure that TikTok is necessarily these types of, of, of uh, social media platforms are behind that kind of stuff. But certainly mob activity and, and young gang activity, where one young gangster says something not nice about the other young gangster's sister or family member or something. Next thing you know, you've got a whole bunch of kids in the neighborhood shooting at each other, not knowing who they're really shooting at. Consequently, police now report that you know they find 30 shell casings and a guns at a at a shooting site with no, no, no sign of injury because they don't know what they're doing. They're kids, they're stupid. They don't think, not all of them, but the ones we're talking about. They just don't think. They do before they think. They're bored, they're lost. They've got nothing else to do. They don't have things to distract their attention. And that's really the game here, isn't it? What we need to do is help our children by distracting their attention so that they do good things. Not bad things with their spare time so that they do things that are beneficial, that they may win a reward, a prize, maybe even a little bit of money. Who knows, right? But this world of social media is not going away, my friends. And we need to be very careful of how young people, and all of us, frankly, but young people in particular, how they're using that. Are they using it for good or are they using it for evil? If you have a chance to make a difference, talk to your kids, find out what they're doing with their time, how they use their social media. And perhaps give them a heads up. When we come back, we're going to talk about a whole bunch more stuff. You are on the road to recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud, six forty Toronto, and welcome back to the show. If you're not sure where you are, you're on the road to recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud. You're on, at listening to six forty Toronto. Thank you for joining us. Wow, what a weekend day! Lots going on. So I got to tell you, maybe six months ago, seven months ago, I was did I did a, a bit of a show on. Uh, you know, uh, arranged, um, you know, dying, arranged suicide, if you will, or not, not even the right word. Death with dignity is probably a better word because that's who our guest represents talking about supported medical assisted dying. Um, And, you know, it just didn't, I don't know, didn't connect to me at that time. And then since that time, as some of you may know, my mom passed away a couple of months ago um, and did not want to be resuscitated or have any of that you know, end of life stuff that might have given her a little more time. She was well into her 90s. She wasn't ill. Uh, she got COVID, ended up with uh, rapid dementia from the COVID, and uh, died six weeks later. But we went through four and a half weeks of assisted dying. Um, you know, we had palliative care people on a regular basis from uh, the Tammy Latner Center. My father was, uh, you know, trained shortly and quickly on how to administer medication also a man in his 90s uh, i was as well in terms of some medications and we just made my life my mom's life as comfortable and as dignified as possible people had caregivers coming to change her clothes and all that kind of stuff and it gave me and she passed with peace i, I miss her every day but she passed with peace the way she wanted to at her home um, that's dying with dignity and i saw it firsthand still makes me cry. I saw it firsthand and I'm now a big supporter. Questions I have are around how and who and what under what circumstances and so on and I'm not prepared to learn or do the research necessary but I have a guest who's joining me right now. Her name is Helen Long and she's the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada and she's a proud she says a proud advocate for assisted dying and end of life choices. Dying with Dignity Canada is a national human rights charity, so that means you guys can send them some money, which is what I suggest you do, and if you believe in this stuff, support them. Committed to improving quality of dying, protecting end-of-life rights, and helping people across Canada avoid unwanted suffering, and that's really what it's about. Helen, welcome to the show, and thank you so, so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks, Joan. I'm I'm sorry to hear about your mom, and I'm I'm glad to hear that she was able to be at home and to uh, to pass peacefully with the family.
0: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. But interestingly enough, people don't understand that there are palliative care programs available from certain hospitals uh, that, that you don't have to pay for, and it's you know not so hard to arrange. And these doctors and nurses that come out, like you, I'm sure, based on the work that you do are just a different breed of cat, but just a different breed of people. Tell us a little bit about your um, your organization, kind of how it came about and, and, and maybe some of the struggles you've had and so on.
3: Yeah, so Dying with Dignity Canada was actually formed in 1980, so over 40 years ago, uh, and at that time uh, there was a small group led by a woman named Marilyn Seguin, who really wanted people to be able to make whatever choice they wanted to around their end of life, so looking at what we call assisted dying, and just for clarity I want to note that palliative care is a specific type of care um, that's given to help alleviate suffering and support someone as they're dying assisted dying which is the legal term that the government uses uh, is when you are assisted to your death uh, through the work of a clinician Um, and there's a full eligibility process of that but they are two very different things some people have both some people have palliative care and then they have an assisted death um, but some people don't but I just want to make sure people understand there is a bit of a distinction there
0: I appreciate. I I do appreciate that. Thank you.
3: Yeah, no worries. So our organization basically started advocating for assisted dying back in the '80s. Um, There were, you know, as you may know, or or listeners may know, a number of cases. Sue Rodriguez um, was a woman with ALS in the 1993 who went to the Supreme Court to try and uh, get her her right to die um, because her suffering was intolerable. And uh, with ALS, you know, you you are generally uh, declining fairly rapidly. Uh, And she she lost in a very narrow five to four margin. Now, years later, uh, in 2015, the Carter case, Kay Carter um, went again to the Supreme Court and Uh, She said, you know, I would like an assisted death and the Supreme Court at this time, you know, took another look, I think a harder look and recognized that denying people the right to have assistance at the end of their lives if they needed it uh, was a violation of their freedom so uh, assisted dying became legal in 2016. And it has since expanded the eligibility criteria just last year in March of 2021 to include people whose deaths are not necessarily what we call reasonably foreseeable. So originally your death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Uh, that's no longer the case. So that's kind of where we sit today.
0: Okay, so that opens up a bunch of questions for me. By the way, p- people need to understand 86% of Canadians support that Carter decision. Uh, yeah. That's an outstanding number. And um, the death eligibility requirement that was introduced last year, uh, also and, and according to Health Canada, eighty percent of Canadians who seek assisted death have also access have also access uh, palliative care. So there is a, a definite blend there. I, I have I have like so many questions. Um, <laughs> you know, it just like we'll never get through it all in one show. But you're definitely, if you're open to it, and I don't embarrass you, you'll hopefully come back. Um, the threshold to qualify that, that that's you know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an observant Jew. I, you know, I'm an Old Testament guy. Um, not that that should impact anything that anybody's listening to. But for me, it's that whole, you know, you're in the hands of your maker thing and that threshold to qualify. Uh, I also believe that uh, whatever you believe in is, you know, forgiving, a forgiving body. So, you know, I, I, I think that this all works, too. But what's that threshold, that, that moral, medical? How do you help me with that?
3: Yeah, so I mean, certainly, you know, I can't speak to the moral, moral perspective, except to say that, you know, it's an individual choice. And every person has their own beliefs, their own belief system, their own belief supports. Uh, It's up to them to make the decision that that works for them and that they are comfortable with. And I think it's really important when we talk about end of life at all. And when we talk about planning, you know, a lot of people do what we call advanced care planning. Yeah. thinking about what their end of life looks like, even even do not resuscitate orders and would I wanna be um, fed through a tube, that kind of thing. Um, I think those are all part of your beliefs and values when you think about those things. So it's a very individual decision. From a medical and a legal, more importantly, a legal perspective, in order to have an assisted death in Canada, uh, you have to be eligible for government-funded healthcare. Uh, you have to be 18 years of age of older, and you have to have the capacity to make decisions about your medical care. So those are kind of the entry level um, qualifiers. After that, you have to have what's called a grievous and irremediable condition. So that's a serious illness, disease or disability. Uh, you must be in an advanced state of decline that cannot be reversed. And you must be experiencing unbearable physical or mental suffering from that illness, disease, disability, or state of decline that cannot be relieved under conditions that you deem acceptable. And that's determined um, by a clinician, by, in fact, two clinicians. So um, you would decide that you wanted to move ahead. You would fill out a request form. One clinician would assess all of these things and also make sure that you have received all of the information you need to make the decision. So a medical diagnosis, available forms of treatment, what options there are to relieve your suffering, including palliative care, and then give informed consent. And then a second clinician would go through the same assessment process. And if both clinicians um, independently confirm that you are eligible, you're now eligible to go ahead and set a date for your assisted death.
0: This takes place in a hospital. This takes place in your home. Where does this take place?
3: Uh, It depends. Um, All of those places, uh, your doctor's office, many people, their first point of contact is their family doctor. So their family doctor can do the initial assessment. Um, There's care coordination teams who will coordinate whether you're in a hospital, a long-term care facility, perhaps at your home. Those are all options that we've seen.
0: Uh, We only got a little bit of time left. I have a, so you mentioned something about, uh, I got so many questions, but anyway, we're not going to get to them all. You you mentioned something about, uh, you know, uh, mental or physical ailment. So people with dementia who are suffering, get to a point like my mom, God forbid, who couldn't swallow and and so on, um, but they don't have the capacity to
3: qualify. No, they, they, they,
0: they, so I I can, can a third party, I mean,
3: no. No, so if someone with a dementia, so dementia is a tricky one, because very early on, or early on, uh, while you still have capacity to make medical decisions for yourself, you can be approved for for an assisted death or what we call made a medically assisted death, if you have dementia, but because of the nature of the disease, you know, you have to make sure that you're approved before you start to lose capacity. And then there's what's called a waiver of final consent. So basically, you sign up, you ensure you're eligible, you set a date, so it can't be too far out. And then you sign a waiver with your clinician that says, if I lose capacity between today, and the day that I've set you can go ahead with my made provision. So that's that's where some people with dementia are able to access need, um, but it's a small number. And okay. if the disease moves quickly, you may not have all of those pieces in place. Um,
0: let, let, let me jump in because I I appreciate that. I don't mean to cut you off, but I have a I have only got a minute left. And and the key question is why is this so controversial? If so many Canadians support it and it's becoming law and such, is it is it the moral the morality clause and everyone's, you know, quote, unquote, religious beliefs? Why is it so, so controversial?
3: No, I think at the at the end of the day, I think it's mostly a lack of understanding and maybe some misinformation um, that's seen in the media. And I think your question about, you know, can someone else sign you up, things like that. No one else can ever support or enforce you getting an assisted death. This is about an individual choice. It's about compassion and it's about ending suffering. So um, I think really it's just more Canadians need to understand the details.
0: I'm talking with Helen Long. She's the CEO of Dying with Dignity Canada. Um, It's so incredible to know that this organization exists and that people do have choices. We'd love to have you come back some other time and talk about this some more, because it seems like this is going to be the way things are going to go into the future. Hopefully for those that are in a place of suffering and just want to end it with their family around and the comforts of their own home, maybe with the, you know, the smell of something they enjoy or their puppy on their on their chest and kind of close their eyes and go away. Um, I think if my life comes to that, that probably is a choice I'm gonna make. You're listening to Yona Bud, you're on the road to recovery, 640 Toronto. We'll see you in just a minute. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. You are on the road to recovery here at 640 Toronto. I'm Yona Bud, your host with uh, Natasha and Heather. And we're doing a whole bunch of stuff here on different things. We're talking about decriminalization of certain drugs. And anyway, we're getting into a story here right now. And if you don't know what this show is about, it's about us helping one another and sharing some information, help us get to the other side of different things around the world, mental health and addiction and youth and crime and all the kind of things that, you know, Maybe cause us to toss and turn in the middle of the night. Well, what I'm going to, the the article I'm going to read you here right now. The, the conversation we're going to have right now is about magic mushrooms. So if you're if you're not sure what a magic mushroom is, it's a you know it's one of those things, one of those things that grows in the ground. That if you chew on them and you eat them properly, and they're not the poisonous kind, but they're the healthy kind, so to speak, uh, they get you really high. So I'm told. So I did them once a million years ago, not a million, a bunch of years ago, uh, not in a controlled environment. I wasn't sure how much I was doing. I didn't like the way they tasted. So I ground them into a coffee grinder and and it became like dust, put it into a drink and drank a bunch of it. As it turns out, probably drank way too much of it and didn't have a very good experience. But since then, I'm learning more and more about magic mushrooms, about psilocybin, and the benefits that it has in the world of psyche, psychedelic uh, mental health treatment, and if you're not sure what that means, that means that we're now starting to understand, and probably have been for a long time. It's just we're trying to make it mainstream now. We're trying to understand how to use things like LSD and magic mushrooms and ayahuasca and uh, you know uh, ibogaine and you know, other kinds of things that um, are pretty much proven to be psychedelic drugs often used in the party world, or just to get a, get a high. Um, and we're now finding that, that that state of mind may in fact lead to some form of breakthrough in helping people with anxiety, depression, um, a, a, a suicide, suicidal ideation, PTSD, PTSD. I've heard, I, I've been told by uh, some of my friends at practice uh, almost, in, you know, completely uh, it, it completely, Almost entirely, if you will, uh, a practice around post-traumatic stress and, uh, and all that. Behavioral issues, it seems to be doing showing some fantastic results, uh, we're being told. Um, so I have my guest this evening is Todd Henderson, and he promises that he's not chewing any mushrooms to talk to us tonight, and I don't believe he does anyway. But he's the head cultivation guy uh, in a very big operation. This is a big operation. We're talking about 10,000 square feet, um, 10,000 square foot buildings. Uh, maybe more than one. Uh, They can produce up to 4,000 pounds of mushrooms at a time, and they plan to harvest at least 2,000 pounds per month. So um, we're going to talk to him right now and find out what's going on back in his company. It's called Optimi, O-P-T-I-M-I, Optimi or Optimi Health Corporation. They're Canadian-based, and they're a psilocybin producing mushrooms and uh, functional mushrooms for clinical trials and so on. Todd, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you, Yara.
0: I, I'm trying to get that psilocybin thing down. It always, uh, it always, uh, It's always easy to say magic mushrooms because I don't have to pretend to actually know what I'm <laughs> speaking about. Um, so you're the guy that grows it, but give me an idea what kind of led to all this. Um, and I, I guess needless to say, you're part of a group that has been advocating for this, uh, the manufacturing and use of this for mental health.
4: Yeah, um, so OptiMai is a fairly new company. We were licensed through Health Canada to produce and sell psilocybin-containing mushrooms and mushroom mass uh, for medical uh, purposes, for clinical trials, etc., for various things like you talked about, depression, PTSD, anxiety, uh, behavioral issues, like currently there's 105 active psilocybin clinical trials going on. For all these different issues, so it's exciting to see where it's going. Uh, as for how did I get into this? Well, I'm uh, I'm Métis uh, by heritage, Cree Indian, and uh, okay. it it was uh, it was part of our heritage to yeah. forage and yep. use these mushrooms in in medicinal, the medicinal part of, of health and healing ceremony and ritual. And it's been going like that for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I'm just the next generation carrying it on.
0: Wow. That's a great, that's a great story, brother. You know, that, you know, you just to not, and I guess without getting into too much philosophy around that, but to be able to take a, a traditional medicine, if you will, or a traditional uh, practice from your very deep and very long and very rich heritage. And see that now spill over into the non-aboriginal communities in a way that they're now starting to recognize that the stuff that your ancestors, their ancestors, and their ancestors' ancestors have been doing forever—it's um, got to be a good feeling.
4: It—it it, it certainly is. Like it's exciting to see you know, that the world... I I mean, the Chinese were leaders in this stuff 3,000 years ago, right? And the Aboriginals, like, there's no record of how long they've been doing it, except for, you know, generationally passed on, and you hear the stories, and you understand the way it's come about. And You know, our older... My older generation, above me, they were definitely adamant about somebody in our generation carrying this on, and I guess I was just the torch holder. So... So, did you,
0: did you, I mean, have you been a, a cultivator of different things for years or is this something, cause this is fairly new, right? So if you, were you have, how long is, how long
4: have you been growing mushrooms and you know, what did you use them for before? Uh, well, I, I learned when I was 15, 16 years old on uh, uh, the Gruard Indian reservation near high Prairie, Alberta. And uh, so I've been, I've learned to cultivate and I've been growing them for, over 30 years now
0: Wow and do and you uh, primarily for ceremonial use I would think
4: c- c- ceremonial and medicine you know that the key that my father and and his cousin Edgar who was super knowledgeable about this stuff um, the key was the medicine he wanted to make sure I understood that this was helping people this was helping our people. In so many different areas, you know, you, you could find clarity and, and knowledge and wisdom if you follow the proper ceremonies and rituals. And, you know, I think everybody who does mushrooms in the right way, they'll, they'll find that clarity. They will see, I, you know, the first time I tried them, I, I saw life in a new light, like it was like a fresh start. You know, things were completely different in my mind.
0: How how uh-huh. often how often have you how often have you yourself experienced that I mean is this something that let me, let me rephrase it. It's not a fair question um, How often does someone in a non medicinal setting uh, How often would someone go on a on a on a mushroom adventure so to speak
4: Well you know I I don't even know if the mushroom adventure or trip is is the purpose anymore I I see the micro dosing is like yeah. Very prevalent right now in yeah. so many people. And you know, it's changing their outlook day to day. They're happier, they're less anxiety, you know. And these are kind of the things we're shooting for to, to end that depression with natural medicines, not synthesized medicines from from drug companies, but something that's coming from the earth naturally. Like, you know, optimize is an EU GMP facility. We are growing it at the most stringent standards to make sure we get the best product out there for people that need it.
0: Stuff grows pretty wild, though, normally, doesn't it?
4: Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, psilocybin mushrooms are indigenous to, to Canada, especially the West Coast here. Like right. During yeah. the spring and the fall, you, you'll see mushroom pickers out there by the hundreds harvesting you know, mushrooms that have grown completely naturally. All we're doing is putting it in a GMP facility and growing them the same way. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. So have you, are, are you using nature the same way as as nature used
0: nature? Or are you more, more like a weed, like the weed growers now that have to make it look like a clinical environment?
4: Well, it's definitely clinical because, uh, you know, to be used for human consumption in, in clinical trials, we have to be GMP standard. That's good manufacturing practices, right? Right. And, uh, you know, it's important for us to create that clean medicine so we can get it out there it's there's no value if people can't use it
0: amazing um let me ask you something is i i was reading i I was talking about um in the onset of my show this evening um a while ago back um and we were talking about the equity we only have a minute or so left here but the equity uh, or inequity of uh, people with mental health issues uh, from communities uh aboriginal communities low-income communities uh displaced communities and so on not having access to the kind of mental health care and such that they need um and we know that and we even for people that live in the center of town there's not enough care so do you see this opportunity to help you um I won't say your own people, because they're my people, too. But, you know, the folks that we're talking about that are perhaps a little uh, harder to get to, a little more, uh, you know, in the outreach regions of the country, are we using, are you using this kind of technology, this kind of um, agri-technology, if you will, to help kids in your own communities?
4: Well, to be honest, you know, we want to help everybody. Like I, 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 I
0: understand, I understand that. I right? don't
4: think anybody should be exempt. Absolutely, They're, you know, uh, indigenous communities have suffered, you know, from uh, alcohol addiction and stuff like that. You know, we want to see it hit all communities. It's important that those communities get back to the natural medicine as well, right? Right. You Amazing. know, I I believe. I believe that our promise to make a future of natural psychedelic alternatives, uh, available to everybody who needs it. You know, we don't want to make it, uh, put it out of touch. You know, we don't want it to be something that, you know, only certain people can get. It has to be available to everybody who needs it. Well,
0: I, I certainly appreciate that you, uh, your commitment to this. I'd love you to come back and we'll talk some more as this starts to carry on and become more and more of a thing, uh, and I'd like to see this prescribed in hospitals, not just private, expensive clinics. But uh, we're definitely moving in the right direction. And we're, we're, we're thrilled and blessed to have people who are gifted at what they do, like you are, to make sure that you can continue the traditions and provide this quality medicine. So uh, kudos to you, brother. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I appreciate well, that,
4: Yona. Thank you.
0: My pleasure. When we come back, we're going to talk about the difference in communities. Well, uh, prisons, drug cons- safe and supervised drug consumption sites inside the prisons. See if we can keep people living just a little bit longer, even if they're incarcerated. That's what we're going to do when we come back. Yonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Now, welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. You are on the road to recovery. I'm Yonah Bud, your host here on 640 Toronto, and we really do appreciate you, and thanks for tuning in. I think I said that already twice. Can you say thank you too many times? That's probably a whole nother show, right? but we'll do that some other time. I was reading a, a really cool article and it, and it captions like this. It may not be a spoonful of sugar, but a small candy can help the medicine go down. I have two little grandchildren. They're not so little anymore. They're getting bigger. Uh, but you know, sometimes you have to give them little treats to take their meds. And for some parents, it's a real thing. So we'll start off with a little bit of medic- medication safety, because I think that's really important. Um, so they suggest here that you place all medications in a locked box, Put them in a place. Yeah, you should be paying attention. If you have children, come on, pay attention. Or they come to your house to play. You should be listening. Have the neighbor kids over sometime. Okay. Place your stuff out of the kid's reach. Okay. All medication in its original child resistant packaging, which by the way, for old folks is a challenge too. I'm here to tell you. The store of the medication is directed. For example, if it says room temperature, room temperature in the fridge, in the fridge. If it don't put stuff in the fridge just because you think it's going to last longer, probably not a good thing. Receive a bottle of pills with a different color, shape, size than you're expecting. Make sure you make sure it's the right medication. If you're not sure of the amounts or combinations of meds, ask your physician or your pharmacist. You should probably do that when you pick the meds up, right? Um, so that's, these are the kinds of things you need to pay attention to. And keep a list, by the way. Keep a list of all the meds that you have on site uh, for your kids, you know, when they took them and uh, how much of it they took. But we do have an expert joining us this evening. Her name is Jane Darch. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you. Uh, and Jane is a certified child life specialist. So the first question I have is this, uh, maybe not so obvious to everyone, certainly obvious to me. What is that job?
5: Sure. Um, so my role at the hospital is to help children to cope with the stress of being hospitalized. And our focus is play and child development. We know children learn best and can cope with stress when they're prepared for the experience they're going to have at the hospital. So our role is to help prepare children for tests and procedures and to help them to cope with things like learning to take medication.
0: That's amazing. What hospital did you do that at?
5: Um, At the hospital for sick children in Toronto.
0: Oh my God. So you are in the, you are in basically the Harvard of medical care for doing what it is you're doing. It's, I believe one of the world-class hospitals, uh, uh, at this time of, of, our, uh, of our life, right? That 2022, it's considered one of the top world-class hospitals, I believe. So are you, Jane, are you a nurse? Is that your background?
5: Um, no, my background's in child studies and education.
0: Interesting. What a cool job. Mm-hmm. So how many, of their, how many of these kinds of people like you are there?
5: We probably have a, clo- a team of close to 25 people Wow. all of us work in different parts of the hospital and I work for the solid organ transplants program
0: that's amazing okay so let's get to some of the questions here um, kids they, they get stressed out when they're taking their medication uh, how do parents make it easier I know it's, I know that there's you know psychology around you know keeping your cool so that if you're cool your kids will be cool and they won't freak out uh, what, what can you share in terms of how, how do you get kids to take meds that taste yucky or look like they're
5: not going to be fun Sure. So there's um, some strategies we use with with children here at the hospital. One of the ways that we do it is that we're able to teach it with um, different sizes of candy. So, for example, um, starting a child learning to swallow something that's whole and solid um, with a candy as small as a nerd. So teaching how to put water into their mouth to wet their mouth first and then put the candy in and then learning to swallow something. Children often think that because it's a, a hole and they don't chew it, that they can't swallow it. So some of the um, education we start with is that your body is able to swallow and what's your esophagus and what's its job and how do we how do we swallow things? Um, often children, first experience with meds is here at the hospital. They've never had to do it before. So there's that sort of initial education of your body is, is capable of swallowing because we swallow saliva over 600 times a day.
0: Wow. And and so, um, do you explain like swallowing a nerd? I never thought of that. They're small enough that that would go down easily. I'm going to tell my wife, I don't have to chew them anymore. I'm just going to swallow them whole, but the, 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 uh, so you do, some of the psychologists suggest that you explain to the kids what medications they're taking. Um, so as you're teaching them to swallow, is that, I mean, are, are they, at, you deal with kids at an age where they're able to identify and understand what they're taking and what they're taking it for?
5: Yes, um, because it, that's one of the ways we empower children. If they understand what it is they have to do and why they have to do it chances are their compliance is going to be higher because it gives them a sense of mastery and control. Right. They don't really have a choice about taking life-saving medication, but where we can, we give them choices about things like um, what will, as you mentioned, meds taste yucky. So um, can we find a way to help with the aftertaste that some of these meds create for children? So, using things like a Popsicle or a cold drink of water or washing away the taste with something they enjoy, like chocolate milk, as an example, um, can help children be more compliant with needing to take those.
0: When you're talking to a young child and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but maybe we skated over, uh, you know, we can talk about a little bit more Uh, kids feel like they're afraid they're going to choke on something solid. Um, How do you have that discussion?
5: (laughs) Um, That's off. That's a very common fear for a lot of children. So that's why we start with small candy because if they can learn to swallow something very small, then we work our way up to other sizes like a miniature M and M or a Tic Tac. Um, And sometimes um, helping children learn to swallow the practice pill, the candy, in food like a small piece of bread or. Um, mushed up banana, something that where the, the pill is a little bit hidden, can help children learn to swallow as well.
0: Um, kids that talk about the, the awful taste, you talk about putting, you know, a popsicle in their mouth and so on. Um, is it, you know, does it then become sort of a habitual thing? My, I, I had a mother once tell me that the problem with her young son is that, you know, every time she gives him his daily meds, because he's a, he has a chronic illness. Uh, that she's, you know, I got to give them a bunch of candy, and uh, she's concerned about the, the amount of candy consumption. It, it's really not—that's it, not a big deal at that stage, right? Like, it's it, that's just over overly concerned, I would think.
5: Um, well, we use the candy to help children learn how to swallow the. Sh- it mimics the shape of a pill. Yeah. yeah. So we want to give them the confidence that if they can swallow that, they're going to be able to swallow their pills. And um, for children who are in families who might be concerned about sugary things after swallowing this is why we suggest things like cold water or a bite of a like a small freezy um or even on like some ice chips or something like that on on their tongue because um that numbs your taste buds a little bit and can take the taste away Um, we encourage children and families to try swallowing medication with water because that's often the most readily available liquid and makes it easier for things like going to school if they had to take their meds during the day while they were at school.
0: Uh, Another question. I've got a couple of minutes left here. So we'll just, I only got time for a couple more questions, but um, the first question I have is, you know, what, how about kids that require injectable medications? I, you know, we have a, a young nephew in our, in our family that uh, ever since he was six months old required insulin injections. And I remember going through the training so that we, my wife and I were able to to provide that kind of care in our home when he came to stay over and stuff. So when kids are dealing with things beyond just swallowing pills, I assume that, you know, you know, sur- surgeries, sur- you know, God forbid, chemotherapy, things like that. Um, how do you, how do you get there with a kid, with a child? Like, take me through that a little bit.
5: Again, it's the education around why do we need to take this medication and working with children on, on what are the steps, what's going to happen um, so that they're prepared and then providing some simple, maybe some simple distraction strategies. So um, can they um, hold a caregiver's hand? Can they use um like a stress toy, something to squeeze, or can they distract themselves with a favorite game on their iPad or something like that? Um, because children learn best and cope best through play.
0: Yeah, I understand. You know, I have to take the time with kids and kind of explain it. I, I believe that even with adults, I, I have to go here, but real quick, Jane, you love your job. I do.
5: Deona. Yeah. Yeah. I can, hear sure.
0: it. I can hear it in your voice. You're, uh, you're certainly one of those angels that's out there. Talking to Jane Dart, she's a certified child life specialist at the Sick Kids Hospital. She just helps makes the boo-boos go away a little bit and make the pain a little bit more tolerable. Thank you so much for joining us. When we come back, we got more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Okay, and welcome back, boy. The show flies by when you're having fun. It's close to 11 o'clock. I didn't catch this earlier, but do you know where your children are, your loved ones, your pets? If not, you need to find them. And if you can't find them, you should probably call 911. Give us a call here at the studio, and we'll do what we can to help you as well. But 911 is your answer if you don't know where the people in your life are. If you should know where they are, you should probably be on top of that. Uh, you know, God, I don't even know where to go and start this conversation. I've been driving around a lot lately, um, doing stuff, moving places, um, trying to have some fun, find some joy in my life. So I've been on the highways. And let me tell you something, my friends, I'm not impressed I'm just not impressed. I can't believe that some people actually get their driver's license and then act the way that they do. I've been cut off. I've been run, over. you know, run up next to, I've had fingers thrown at me. People swear at me. I've had some guy threw a banana peel at me. Um, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> I think I'm a pretty good driver. You know, a couple of years ago, I'm not even. Uh, my wife and I were coming back from downtown Toronto was late at night on the Don Valley Parkway, minding our own business. Um, I, I, I think I, I might've swerved to one lane for a second and then swerved back sky behind me. I gave a hand like a high kind of a hand wave to, you know, like, sorry, buddy. Well, next thing I know that was at, that was close to Don Mills coming up North from the Southbound, you know, South to North on the Don Valley. So that was at around Don Mills. This guy, this guy and his friend followed us right to our exit at Steeles, Followed us, cut us off, got out of his car and tried to bang his way into my window. I don't know what I did, and there was tons of people around us. I had to back up. I had to drive over a medium. I had an SUV. I was able to do that. Drive over a medium. Call the police throughout this. I called the police when I had them on. When I had them at on the Don Valley. And the guy was out of control. He would have hurt me and he would have hurt my wife for sure. So firsthand, I'm telling you that the road rage that's out there and the stupid driving that's going on out there is more more rampant than anyone has said. According to the OPP, they say 2022 has so far been the deadliest year on highways since 2012, okay? And ahead of the, this this goes back, right? So they had had the long weekends, summer seasons coming up and all that stuff from before, you know, this is a, a report that goes back, you know, the middle of May. The provincial police say 2021 has marked the worst year in 10 years, right? Uh, OPP said two driving behaviors stand out the most. Driving in, inattention, people not paying attention. How many people have you seen texting on their phone when you're driving? Put up your hand, right? There's a lot of you out there. I got both hands and both feet up right now. I see it all the time. And then I ask myself, Should I honk and roll down the window and say, hey, buddy, put the phone away, man? Right? We're not doing a good job. Driver inattention linked deaths are up 79% over this time last year, according to the OPP. Alcohol deaths, for example, have seen a 36% increase. Still nothing to report. Still nothing to be proud of, right? Why people still get high and drink? I don't get it. I just don't get it. There's so many other options. We know so much about the consequences. We know so much about what you know what's going to happen. You're not going to get a slap on the wrist. You're going to lose your license likely. And if you're a kid and you're under 30 or 25, it's going to cost you a fortune. If you can keep your insurance and keep your license, you're not going to be able to afford to drive. I have patients of mine that are in their early 20s that are paying $10,000, $10,000 a year to drive a car. Like, that's ridiculous because of uh, because being inebriated behind the wheel. Two of them because they were inebriated with, with marijuana. So, my, my point is, my friends, we're not doing a great job out there on the streets. Not, not at all. And when it comes to fatalities due to speeding, the figures are not as far off from last year's mark with 27 deaths so far this year, 15 seatbelt deaths. People are putting their seatbelts on. That's a good thing. We're, we're definitely buckling up. But the road rage. And the, and the um, inebriated driving, the in, you know intoxicated driving under the influence is, is out of control. Uh, what, are, what are we all thinking? That you can have three or four beers and drive home? No, you can't. You can smoke a joint at a barbecue and at your brother-in-law's and get back in the car with your wife and kids and you'll be okay. I, maybe you'll be okay, but the chances are if they swab the inside of your mouth, you're going to get arrested. So plan for your fun, right? Plan for your activity. Plan to do the things you need to do in a way that makes it safe. And when you're on the highways and you're on the roadways and people want to cut you off or cut in front of you, let them go. Don't get into a battle with them. You're going to lose even if you win. You don't know who's got a gun. You don't know who's going to cut you off. You don't know who's going to come and bang on your windows like I had to experience. Those people would have hurt me for sure. Like no no doubt in my mind if they would have gotten into the car. When you drive drunk, or you drive high, or you drive stupid, what's driving stupid? You know what driving stupid is. I'm sure right now your wife, your husband, someone's looking at your loved one, your, part, your partner, someone is in the room with you going, yeah, man, he's talking about you. You don't have to be the fastest guy on the street, honestly. You can take a course for that and rent a vehicle and go do that on a track. And to be aggressive and to get there five, months, five minutes sooner and potentially put other people's lives at risk, it doesn't make sense. There's no upside. I'm, I'm open to the upside, right? I'm open to the upside of these kinds of things. So let's just do a better job of handling ourselves on the roads, not getting involved in rage activities, slowing down, and not getting high or drunk and getting behind the wheel. That's all I ask. And maybe these numbers will come down. We've got a lot of stuff going on next week. Hopefully you're going to be able to make it. Make sure you put it in your calendar to join us Next week at nine o'clock, we'll be back on air and here on 640 Toronto doing more of what we do. I love you guys. You're the best audience ever. And we do appreciate your time and the fact that you choose us. And we hope to see you next week. And uh, yeah, man, have a good week. Remember, love the one you're with. Hug the people that are closest to you. And like my mom used to say, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. We'll see you next week. Peace.